Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. After you finish the episode, make sure to check out a brand new episode of our live music series on YouTube called The Ringer Room. Each month, we feature a new up-and-coming musical artist to play a live set in the Ringer Studios. So far, we've featured artists like Cautious Clay, Mount Joy, and Earth Gang, and we just posted our episode for July showcasing Charlie Bliss. You can check out those videos at youtube.com slash The Ringer. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about, so let's just jump right into it with Zach Cram. So we are all waiting around for the MLB trade deadline season to start. And lo and behold, it has started. We have trades and like not huge trades, but notable trades. And here to talk about those notable trades with me is Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Zach. I thought we were going to talk about socialism on the Savannah after your Lion King piece. You know, Andrew Gretadar really, uh, it was, that piece was his idea. And I think he really, uh, he knows how to, to assign, uh, important topics to writers who are able to, to get the most out of them. I think, you know, that was really one of those things that I was put on this earth to write this, uh, evaluation of scar as a governmental administrator. So, uh, yeah. But thanks for the, for bringing that up. Uh, go read that on the ringer uh, the ringer dot com. Um, one thing we haven't written about is a series of trades that happened over this weekend. Uh, so let's just go down one by one. Um, let's start with the most recent, and I think the most interesting trade for me is Martin Maldonado uh, goes from Kansas City to the Chicago Cubs for left-handed pitcher Mike Montgomery. Uh, Zach, your thoughts? So Martin Maldonado, I think, is the main name here because he's the name. He's the player who is going to the contender. Mike Montgomery uh, holds a special place in Cubs history. He secured the final out of the 2016 World Series. Uh, Obviously, the first Cubs pitcher to do that in 108 years. And I'll just mention, because he has one of my favorite names in baseball history, that the last pitcher to get uh, I was going to ask if you knew the last person was Orville Overall. Oh, yeah. Legend. And uh, the year before him, Mordecai Three Finger Brown. Mm -hmm. So we got to get Mike Montgomery a better name for the history books. But Mike Montgomery uh, had really been struggling this year and really for the last couple of years had been regressing. So I think it makes sense as a flyer for Kansas City to try to straighten him out in games that don't really matter as much. From the Cubs perspective, Wilson Contreras is their catcher and he's on the injured list. Wilson Contreras is supposed to come back after... Uh, the 10 days of his IL stay are up. But I think this is where we kind of see the single deadline format having an effect. You can't make trades in August this year, unlike in the past where, yes, July 31st was the, the deadline, but you could still put trades in through after that using waivers. Uh, if Contreras is, uh, has a setback in his injury recovery, the Cubs don't really have replacements. Victor Caratini has hit, but he's not really a defensive catcher. Maldonado is. And I think there are a couple possibilities for upgrade here. One is that Maldonado is kind of the opposite of Contreras. Contreras is a very good hitter, but not a good framing catcher. Maldonado is kind of the reverse. He has a lower career slugging percentage than Contreras' on-base percentage. So that just shows uh, the difference in their offensive capabilities. But if Maldonado's behind the plate, it'll help the Cubs pitching staff. The Cubs outfielders haven't really been hitting and Contreras can play in the outfield. So maybe there'll be a day or two per week when Contreras comes back that 
they'll have Maldonado behind the plate and Contreras can take over for like Kyle Schwarber against a tough lefty pitcher in left field. So I think it gives Joe Madden additional roster flexibility. Then again, it's not really going to make or break the Cubs chances in the NL Central. Yeah, and Caratini's another you know, I I wonder if this is just about getting a different kind of, of catcher because I, I think Caratini's a solid backup. He certainly hits well enough for a, a catcher, um, and he's played a little bit, not as much in left field as Contreras has, but he's, um, you know, had the odd inning at, at first base and third base over his big league career, um, played just a couple outs at a time in the corner outfield spots as a rookie a couple years ago. I think, you know, I don't, Think that Maldonado is better on the ag- on the aggregate than Caratini, um, particularly because he was an awesome framing catcher a couple years ago, and he, and now he's just sort of average. And that's uh, you know, when you're a guy who's toting around like uh, a WRC plus in the seventies, that matters a lot. That difference from you know, it's it's I I think it's some like thirty runs a, a year or tw- you know some or in the the twenties the the difference between where he was at his peak in either twenty sixteen or seventeen and where he's been the past two seasons. Um, the pitchers love to throw to him. I know Shohei Otani was uh, a huge fan of his when they were together uh, with the Angels. The Astros made a deal like this uh, to get Maldonado last year and played him a lot down the stretch. Um, Madden's gone with three catchers in the past. Both of the Contreras and Caratini can hit, so it's not like they're carrying dead weight on the bench uh, by by doing that. You know, I see the logic, particularly because they're not giving up much uh, or really anything because Montgomery, um, from the Cubs' perspective, and this is what makes this trade so interesting to me, is how much different or how different the value of Mike Montgomery is for the Cubs versus the Royals. Because to the Cubs, he's, he's out of options. He hasn't really figured it out out of the bullpen this year as good as he was the, the past couple years before that. Um, and they just don't have, they don't have the roster space. They don't have the innings to let him just go out there and throw and figure his shit out. Uh, and so he's out of options. I don't know if he figured into their plans at all for next year. So if they, if it was this or lose him on waivers at some point, why not just get something that you know will be useful now uh, instead of risking losing him for nothing later? That makes sense to me. Uh, from the Royals' perspective, I love this trade from Kansas City's perspective because Montgomery has been good enough in the past. Like, you know, we're looking at, and we saw Andrew Casher get traded, Homer Bailey get traded uh, over the weekend. And we'll talk about that in a second. Even like mediocre, inconsistent starting pitchers who don't throw a lot of innings will get you something. Um and there's a pretty good chance, I'd say probably a better than even chance, that the Royals redevelop Montgomery just by putting him back in the rotation where he said he prefers pitching, letting him ramp up to something approaching league average, and then flipping him sometime next year. And I think that you know, we could see uh, we could see them get back something really valuable on a better time frame for uh, the Royals' next good team, which you know, which could be a few years off at this point. So, you know, this is I think it's a good. Use of, uh, you know, signing Maldonado, somebody had to had to catch uh, and now they're flipping him for some, you know, something that they can use in the short term or a player they can use in the short term and then flip for uh, more assets down the road. I think this is a really savvy deal by uh, by Kansas City. And, you know, I, I don't love it for for the Cubs, but, you know, I certainly see the logic behind it. Yeah. To just put Montgomery's struggles this year in perspective, if you add up the home runs and walks he's allowed, it's more than the number of strikeouts he's had this year. It's so great. it's kind of the wrong direction in all three of the most important stats for a pitcher. Uh, maybe Kansas City can turn him around. It, 
ironically, it would help if he had someone like Maldonado to catch for him. But, you know, he'll get Salvador Perez back next year. And uh, like you said, I think it it's probably from Kansas City's perspective, the idea of let's try and fix him and trade him at next year's deadline. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen Kansas City, you know, this was where Mike Miner got his start when, uh, you know, he wasn't the Cy Young contender he is now. But he started to put the pieces back together. We've seen Kansas City do this with a few pitchers in a similar spot in their career to Montgomery. So I think if nothing else, if like if if he doesn't turn it around there, it won't be for lack of opportunity. I think that's that makes this a good good trade for Montgomery's uh, perspective. And Maldonado gets to go chase a ring again. So I think everybody walks away from this happy. Um, the next. Uh, Next trade I want to talk about is Homer Bailey, another Kansas City Royal, former Kansas City Royal, goes to Oakland uh, for minor league infielder Kevin Merrill. Uh, this is the 120,000th trade between uh, the Royals and the A's uh, in the past 25 years. It seems Sometimes it seems like these clubs only deal with each other. Um, Homer Bailey uh, is actually pitching somewhat effectively. So that's that's why the, the A's want him. In, uh, in case that comes as a surprise to anybody who's familiar with his work the past couple of years with the Reds. Yeah, I mean, I think you can get a little too far when you're saying he's been pitching effectively. This is his first season since 2015 with an ERA below six. Uh, and even then, his ERA is still 4.8, which is worse than league average. If you look at even his underlying numbers, it's not much better than average. Over his last five starts, he's pitched better, but that's a lot of batted ball luck. He's still walking a lot of guys uh, and not striking out too many. So I don't think, again, like with Maldonado, he's not going to change Oakland's fortune, but Oakland needs healthy arms at this point. Frankie Montas was breaking out, and then he was suspended, and all their young pitchers still aren't really ready yet. Jesus Lazardo has had yet another setback in the minor leagues. So Oakland has to eat up innings at some point in the second half. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I described this in, in my piece that went up today as uh, you know, sacrificing somebody to the God of somebody's got to pitch those innings. And I think that's what, what Bailey is at this point. And Oakland's had success trading for that kind of pitcher. You know, sometimes they get rehabilitated and turned into their former selves. And sometimes they just, you know, plug along with an ERA and the high fours and just keep the A's into the game or in the game until they can turn things over to the bullpen. And I think either one is just fine from Oakland's perspective. Um, the player they gave up, Merrill, uh, is a former uh, first rounder. Uh, lots of speed, not a ton of power, not a lot of secondary skills. Um, the most interesting things about him are biographical that I learned in the, uh, the time that I was Googling him before we started doing this podcast. Uh, Kevin Merrill is a native of Lutz, Florida. You know who else is from Lutz, Florida? Please enlighten me. Uh, South Carolina football legend Stephen Garcia is from Lutz, Florida. I uh, can't believe I didn't know that. Off, yeah, the top I can't of my believe head. you didn't know that either. Uh, Kevin Merrill's middle name is Custer, which uh, is, um, I guess, I'll just say fraught with with meaning. I guess, um, and he went to George M. Steinbrenner High School. I, I was just looking at Oakland's uh, pitching stats thus far and trying to think because I've watched a decent amount of Oakland baseball this year. I don't think I've seen a single Brett Anderson inning yet. He's somehow thrown 109 innings, which is second on the team. Chris Bassett has thrown 84 innings. They really do need arms. Wow. I guess uh, Kevin Merrill hour hour was really that uh, uninteresting to you. I mean, Brett Anderson is striking out four and a half batters per nine innings. That's like 2012 Minnesota twins. I mean, that's like 
1968 Minnesota Twins. Um, yeah, I, I well, nobody on that that staff is really striking anybody out. Daniel Mengden has never been a strikeout guy. Fires isn't striking anybody out. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, for some reason it just doesn't bother me when Oakland doesn't have like an orthodox pitching staff. I never, I'm, I don't sit around waiting for them to regress the way I do with like say when this happens in Colorado. Um, it just seems like they know what they're doing, and that's why this trade, uh, it, it makes sense for, for Oakland. Cause Bailey's just, you know, Bailey's just going to give them something. And I think that's what they need to, to stay in the race. Yeah. Oakland's one of those teams. I don't think we're going to talk about this trade much because it involved the minor leaguers, but also over the weekend, Tampa Bay traded Nick Solak. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. So I, he's a triple a second baseman, uh, who projects to be maybe an average regular, uh, fan has him as a 50 on the 20 to 80 scouting scale. And they traded him for Peter Fairbanks, who I believe has had Tommy John surgery twice. Yes. And he's an older reliever. So you would think, well, Texas got the better of that trade. What is Tampa Bay doing? But Tampa's at the point where I just fully trust they know what they're doing. So you have to kind of look at the next level. What do they see there? It's kind of where Oakland is now after they've gotten stuff out of Anderson this season and from Edwin Jackson last year. They've just had success with these veteran arms. The fact that they have a really good defense probably helps. But I could very easily see Homer Bailey rattling off like, I don't know, a three, six ERA in the mm-hmm. second half and going like seven, two or something. Yep. It's certainly possible. Yeah. And beating Chris sale in game two of the ALDS or something, or I guess they, no, that, that won't work. Beating Chris sale in the wild card game. I guess that would be, that's even better. That, yeah. That's I'm just thinking, I don't think either of those teams is going to overhaul the division leader. So, um, yeah, Solak, that trade's interesting to me because Solak is like, he's sort of a, a bat first utility kind of guy. And he just seemed very Tampa. It was very interesting to see Tampa Bay, you know, Fairbanks is, is certainly talented. Um, but Solak's the kind of player that Tampa Bay usually likes to hold on to. And I guess maybe this is just, they're dealing from a position of strength. Yeah. They just um, have 14 other guys ahead of him who are just maybe that's, good. maybe that's what this is. Uh, but yeah, that's, I think he's a, a good get for Texas. So, I, you know, I don't see that trade really impacting the pennant race all that much, but I'm glad you brought it up because it, it did make me scratch my head a little bit. Um, let's go to the last one of these trades uh, before we go. Andrew Kashner, uh, the uh, big hairy right-hander from the Baltimore Orioles, is on his way to Boston for Elio Prado and Nolberth Romero, two minor leaguers I know uh, nothing about. Uh, I was going to say very little, but no, I really don't know much at all about them. Casher is another guy who's had success with that, striking a lot of guys out. Um, he's been inconsistent over, you know, it, it just seems like he's got the one good year, one bad year thing going on. Um, and I don't know, the Red Sox, though, at this point, just they sort of need innings too. And Kashner is obviously a at least one level up from Bailey, probably uh, more than that. But it's a similar, like, you don't get Andrew Kashner thinking he's going to be your game one World Series starter. This is just somebody who they think can keep, you know, keep the team in games uh, more so than their internal options. Yeah, and he's been fairly effective this year, which is strange to say about an Orioles pitcher. And it looks like 11 of his 17 starts, he's allowed three runs or fewer. And especially recently, he's pitched well against the A's, the Astros, the Indians. So he's been pitching well, at least by the results. But you look at the underlying numbers and it's kind of confusing as to why. I think even when this trade happened, the reporting was 
if everyone on Boston is healthy, he probably won't even make the playoff roster. But that's a, a big if about Boston, especially given the way Rick Porcello is pitching. They're bringing Nate Eovaldi back to be the closer, which is maybe the strangest thing that's happened with Boston this year, that they signed Eovaldi to be a starting pitcher and then he got hurt. And then they intentionally did not do anything about the bullpen. And now Eovaldi's coming back as a closer. I don't Very weird. Yeah. Like, can he pitch on two days in a row? I don't really know. Um, and I'm kind of concerned about that bullpen still. Dombrowski probably has a move left in him. And I, I guess Kashner just gives him some more flexibility at the back. And end the bullpen is bullpen is an area where I think there's value on the trade market. There are just so many good relievers out there are so many relievers who you can sort of wish on that. I think it's a, a buyer's market. But this leads to the question I was going to ask you as we talk about these three trades, because we really haven't gotten to the meat of the deadline yet. Between Bailey, Kashner, and Maldonado, does a single one of them start any playoff game this year? Um, I'd just say on balance, no. I think if Oakland gets to the divisional round, I think Bailey starts. Um, Kashner is the guy. I see one of two things happening. I, I think uh, just in terms of what Bill Simmons will slack at us uh, this offseason, it's either going to be Andrew Kashner, uh, uh, deserves to die or Andrew Kashner deserves a three-year, $60 million contract. And I don't think there's going to be any in-between from those two outcomes. I, I think could see, yeah, I could see Kashner starting game three or four of a playoff series if Porcello continues to struggle. And then you have Sale, Price, and Eduardo Rodriguez. Is Kashner a better bet than Porcello at this point? Maybe. And that kind of speaks to the shakiness of Boston's overall pitching situation right now. The very fact that they needed a pitcher from the Orioles who are one of the worst pitching staffs of all time. But if you had to get one, Kashner's not the worst choice. Yeah. I mean, like they got the one good guy. Well, I guess John means is, uh, is the one good guy or the one better guy than Kashner. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I think all of these, these are interesting. The other thing we need to remember is both wildcard races and all, obviously all these trades are, are sort of contained within the AL wildcard, but they're all so close right now. It's so deep that, you know, we're not seeing the big arms shake loose. You know, a lot of the, this trade de- deadline would be a lot more interesting if like Arizona fell out of the NL wildcard race in a big way in the next couple of weeks and force them to really uh you know or motivate them to to trade uh Granky or, or Robbie Ray. Um you know, same with Texas and, and Lance Lynn and Mike Minor. You know, the the players who are really going to move the needle haven't been I, a lot of them are, are on teams that are in the playoff race and have just you know are just hanging on to the playoff race or just in the Giants case with Madison Bumgarner return to the playoff race. You know, like if the Giants aren't sellers, that throws the whole calculus of this trade deadline into chaos. Um, just because of how many valuable pitchers they have who might not be on the move if the Giants are within a game or two of the wild card. So I don't know, like we're like you said, we're definitely not into the meat, but these are are players who are available now. And because those races are so close, you know, the upgrade from, you know, quad a guy here to Bailey or Kashner that, yeah, that could make a difference. Yeah, and I was a little facetious before talking about starting a playoff game, but no, I think that's a, the, that, that's a valid question because I you don't have to get to the playoffs first. Yes. And a team like the Dodgers, if they're going to make an upgrade, maybe it's for the bullpen. That's explicitly we need to improve our bullpen in October. The Red Sox, the A's, they need to get there first. And 
having an Andrew Kashner start on a random, I don't know, Friday in Toronto is better than having Hector Velazquez or Brian Johnson make that start. And that could be the difference between falling a game short and making the wildcard game where then you have Chris Sale to pitch. So I think these marginal upgrades matter for the teams at the margins of the playoff race right now uh, because both leagues have such a congested wild card. Position. And maybe that like that requires a change in our thinking because those uh, those trades explicitly for the playoffs have dominated the big moves of the past couple of years. You know, Machado and Darvish to the Dodgers in 17 and 18, Verlander to the Astros, uh, Ivaldi to the Red Sox last year. Like those moves were by teams that knew they were in and needed to get better or thought they needed to get better um, in order to survive in the playoffs. And now we're seeing like there are just so many teams that have nothing guaranteed at this point. And so and without the the uh, option of trading for players in August, such a long runway to get through. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, Ben has written about this. I wrote, I touched on this a little bit. We have no idea how the next couple of weeks are going to shake out. Um, so it'll be interesting to see you know, how this, the unified deadline and the small crop of sellers and large group of contenders uh, is going to affect trading. Cause, you know, I'm really not sure how to read this yet. And I'm, I, I also wouldn't say that the, the people actually making these trades know how to read this situation yet. Yeah. And, Bailey might not work out. Kashner might not work out. But if 12 teams add a fifth starter or a bench bat, odds are one of them is going to make a difference. And we'll be able to look back on this month and say, hey, that that's why you try to upgrade, because it could actually matter. Yep. Well, that's a good way to look at it. One of these moves is going to work out. Um, I'm sure there'll be moves by the time we talk next week. But until then, thanks for joining me. Until then. How often do you think about your socks? If you're like I used to be, not much, but I recently discovered socks that changed the way I'll think about socks forever. They're called Bombas. Now me, I love Bombas because they're stylish, they're versatile, they're comfortable, they're well-built, they're not going to fall apart like your you know, little 12-pack uh, of uh, off-the-shelf department store socks. Uh, they'll last forever, they're comfortable in, in multiple conditions. Uh, they are, as Bombas say, the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. They're made from super soft natural cotton, and every pair comes with arch support a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's comfy but not too thick. With many colors, patterns, likes, and styles, Bombas look great in the gym, at the office, and out on the town. Bombas are what feet daydream about. And best of all, for every Bombas purchase you make, Bombas donates a pair to somebody in need. Buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash MLB today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB for 20% off. Bombas.com slash MLB. All right, you might remember uh, my next guest from one of the very first episodes of the season. It's Megan Montemuro from The Athletic. Megan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I was looking forward to talking to you again, uh, but not under these circumstances, because you've just written uh, a detailed uh, dissection, postmortem of the Phillies' disastrous fourth inning in their 16-2 loss to the Dodgers last night. Uh, and the headline starts with, is this rock bottom? So, uh, is this rock bottom? I mean, for the Phillies' sake, they better hope it is because anything worse than this um, is kind of hard to imagine with given how poorly they've played over the, the last six weeks. But, you know, a game like last night, you know, when you have the best team in baseball coming in, uh, you would hope that your team is up for the challenge. And instead, you know, it looked like the Dodgers were playing a rebuilding team. I mean, it was 
it was pretty embarrassing, um, regardless of whether Gabe Kapler or any players would say that after the game. Um, just they were completely outclassed by the Dodgers, and it just really kind of sent a message that there is a vast gulf between these two teams, which is troubling for the Phillies, who are supposed to be a, a playoff team at the very least this year. Yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of threads in there that we're going to pick up. The first one is the just the variety of ways that they found ways to or the variety of ways they found to to pull off embarrassing losses. I actually managed to get home and watch a Phillies game from the stands as a fan uh, over the weekend. And Aaron Nola pitched well, and then uh, they blew the lead with two outs in the top of the ninth inning. Uh, it ended up ended up losing. And then they got blown out on Monday on like little league shit. You know, the team. The whole team forgot the number of outs. They got burned on. Like my little brother's travel ball team executed that double steal better than, uh, better than the Phillies. Yeah, and it's just, it, this just doesn't feel like. And it, there are excuses that you know the injuries. The it, you know Rio Muto hasn't hit it quite as well as as expected. Harper hasn't hit quite as well as expected. You know, there are mitigating factors, but this just they just seem like they're sleepwalking. Yeah, and I mean. You look at, yeah, you, like you said, the injuries, obviously the bullpen has been pretty de- devastated by them. You know, it looks like they're not going to, at any point this entire season, have the bullpen they thought they were going to go into the season with. Um, and so obviously that's troubling. But, you know, I, I think good teams find a way to overcome those things. And obviously the front office hasn't really done much in that regard to offer them any reinforcements. Um, but, you know, on paper, this was a team that was expected to outscore other teams. They weren't going to win a lot of games necessarily by outpitching other teams. This is a team that was designed to score a lot of runs. And, you know, everyone saw a glimpse of that in the first week of the season of, of how good the offense could be. And pretty much since then, I mean, it's been really inconsistent and really troubling. I mean, they've really struggled to score more than three runs consistently. Um, and so when you add that into you know, getting beat in small ways like they were last night, you know, getting beat on double steals, not executing uh, safety squeezes, um, forgetting how many, pretty much most of the guys forgetting how many outs were um, in the inning, you know, it's stuff like that, that hints at deeper issues than, you know, giving up seven runs in an inning. Because like that happens, you know, Eflin's pitched really well throughout the course of the season, certainly better than I uh, expected him to. And, you know, just good pitchers have bad outings from time to time. And it but it's just been so systemic and it's been disconcerting. Like, you know, I'm not being completely detached and objective, as you can probably tell here. (laughs) Um, But it's frustrating to like there's a difference between. The the quotes in your story from last night were were all very, and you mentioned this very. We'll take it one day at a time. Tomorrow's another day. From Gabe Kapler and and the players, uh, and there's a difference between being cool under pressure and keeping an even keel, and just mm-hmm. looking like you don't realize that the ship's taking on water. Yeah, I mean, there should be some sense of urgency. It doesn't mean you have to be panicking, but to say that, yeah, you know, we'll get them tomorrow. I mean, probably the worst thing that could be happening to this team is that the rest of the NL is basically so mediocre that they're still in a position right now tied for the second wild card. So it's like, you know, if there, if this was a, a more competitive league all around, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to be saying these things because they would be sitting four games out of the second wild card right now. But 
they can point to that wild card spot and say, hey, you know, we're still in the postseason if, if the season ended today. I think that's part of the issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just doesn't seem like there's much sense of urgency. And you compare that to, like, say, the Cubs when you had Theo, you know, two or three weeks ago, basically calling everybody out in the organization and saying that the way they've played has been unacceptable and that there will be consequences if that continues. And then you see the Cubs with Wilson Contreras out for, you know, maybe only 10 days with the heel issue, go and add a, a legitimate catcher um, to fill in in his absence. So, I mean, I, I think like those are the, you see the two contrasts of what the Phillies should be doing perhaps versus their reality. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're a Phillies fan, I would completely understand if you're fed up and frustrated with this team because they have clearly not lived up to what they should be doing. And this is the offensive adage that you mentioned is it it just strikes me as tougher to deal with than a couple, you know, a, a pitcher or two uh, suddenly losing it because like you can't plan around guys just not hitting, particularly players like, you know, they invested most of the the uh, prospected young player capital that they had to trade in those big trades this offseason. Um, so there's, you know, there's not a whole lot of room for improvement unless just the guys they have on the roster start hitting. And, you know, we've seen that they're capable of doing that. Maybe they just wake up today and and everybody feels better. And, and uh, you know, that's the, the first day of the rest of the season and they're fine. Um, but they're in kind of a tough spot because I don't know, you know, what they have left to, you know, what cards they have left to play. I'm a little bit sympathetic to Matt Klintak because, you know, he's made his big moves and they're, you know, the, the bats out there on the market, um, you know, they can't really go out and add a first baseman or a corner outfielder because those positions are pretty much plugged up. And that's really where the value is on this trade market. Yeah. And I mean, I think a, a concerning thing is you look at the starting lineup. I mean, how many of these guys have taken a step forward offensively this year? I mean, you have Scott Kingery, but he was so bad last year that that would almost have been impossible for him not to hit better this year. But otherwise, you look at the veterans and the younger players, how many have actually improved versus regressing? I mean, Real Muto hasn't hit like he was expected moving into a, a more friendly ballpark and getting out of the, the killer Marlins park. I mean, Harper hasn't been um, really the offensive force that he was expected to be at least not beyond maybe like a week-long stretch here or there and so I think there's considerable concern in that regard I mean these are guys that you're building around beyond just this season and you're having major issues scoring runs with them and yeah and to your point I mean the most obvious places for them to upgrade would be center field or third base and I mean how many options are you really going to have there to add an impact bat where you might have to give up something that's more worth than more worth or more trouble than um, just sticking with what you have and hoping that, you know, Franco keeps hitting like he does when he goes on those hot streaks, which he's kind of been on in the last week or so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a big problem. And I know people have been clamoring for them to fire the hitting coach, but even if they were to fire the hitting coach, unless they completely change their hitting philosophy, I mean, it's an organizational thing. It's from the big league team down to the minors. And so even if they make that change, if they're still preaching and teaching the same things, how much is really going to change? I mean, I guess you're, you'd be, in that case, you're banking on the message and making a difference. So what's the, what are their options the way you see it? I mean, basically it's kind of what they've been saying this whole time. Like 
it's on the at some point it's on the players to have to step up and, and perform. And you can point to the coaching staff, you can um, point to the front office, and and maybe it's them not making um, moves, particularly in the bullpen, to supplement the talent they already have. But I mean, this is a talented roster. I mean, I'd like it's kind of like you said, what other steps? Can Matt Klintak take to improve this team? Um, I think he. I think it's fair to give some criticism that the bullpen has not been addressed, and now you have Tommy Hunter potentially gone for the year again. Pat Neshek sounds like maybe mid mid September he could be back. David Robertson still isn't on a rehab assignment, so I mean, these are issues that have been going on for most of the season with those three guys. So I think I think that's a fair fair criticism because. You know, as you mentioned, there have definitely been plenty of games lost because of the bullpen not being able to hold on to leads. And you can only use Hector Neris so many times um, with, without him, you know, at some point blowing games. So um, for the most part, I mean, these guys just need to perform like they're capable of performing. And maybe that means there needs to be a, a change in messaging from Gabe Kapler. Um, and the coaching staff. But I mean, ultimately, it's, it's going to be on the players. One thing I, I wanted to ask you while I still had you here is it just it strikes me as as weird that Jake Arietta has been struggling recently and they've identified the problem and they're just not going to fix it. You know, he's just going to pitch through these the uh, bone spurs in his elbow until something changes. And you know, I I guess like on one level they they are that hard up for starting pitching that a compromised Arietta uh, is better than the next guy that they can bring in. It just you know it just seems like another symptom of just sort of plugging your ears and, and hoping the problem goes away. Well, yeah. I mean, especially when, you co- you know, coming into the season, they were touting the depth of starting pitching that they had at AAA. And, you know, some of those guys they've used, they maybe haven't used them in the best roles. I mean, I, I don't see the harm in, you know, I guess maybe now it's a little more urgent, but a couple of weeks ago, letting Cole Irvin start to make two or three consecutive starts and see how he looks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of an indictment on the entire organization that you're having to put out this 33 year old pitcher who's trying to pitch through a bone spur, which when we were asking him to try and explain the pain, you know, for a guy in Arietta who, you know, is a, is a pretty tough dude. And for him to basically be like, I can't like articulate the, the pain and, and how painful it is. Like, I mean, that's not good. And it's really hard to envision him being able to pitch like that for the next two plus months and potentially into the postseason. So, you know, given that the Phillies have generally been reluctant to add starting pitching through trades. um, Yeah. I mean, it's very problematic, especially when you look at, you know, the two other spots in rotation and Nick Pavetta and Vince Velasquez, who they struggle at times to get through, you know, five plus innings. So that's potentially, you know, three fifths of your rotation, giving you only maybe five innings a night. And, you know, that bullpen is not the bullpen that they're expecting to have. And it's hard to see how they can hold up long-term in this kind of setup. Yeah, it, it's bad enough that while you were talking just now, I looked up Tom Eshelman's stats with Baltimore to see yep. if that like that was something uh, something that they missed. Um, I don't know, what's, what's the outlook? Do you think this is, you know, is this rock bottom? I know you said that they better hope yeah. so, but like, you know, do you think this is going to turn around on their own? Or do you think that, sometime in the next two weeks that Clentac and Kapler are going to make some sort of change that will, uh, you know, attempt to right the ship uh, before it's too late. I mean, they still have three games left against the Dodgers team. 
Um, so I don't know. Maybe I don't know. It, to me, I say it's not rock bottom because until you you have, I think, more frustration coming out of the clubhouse publicly. Um, I think that is when things really. That's <laughs> start a great to turn point. The tide. That is the one thing that they're missing, like a big a big meltdown. Yeah. Exactly. Like on the field, I think they might be at the rock bottom point, but in the clubhouse, at least publicly, they're still saying the right things. They're still outwardly being optimistic. But I mean, at some point, I mean, you're running out of time. I know, I know they are in good position again, like I said, because the rest of the NL is, is pretty mediocre. Um, and so just by default, almost, they're still staying in, um, playoff contention but i mean it's troubling that for the second year in a row you're having these extended like six week free falls where you go from a good good to borderline great team to completely awful and so that tends that deeper issues and so for me i think on field they're approaching the rock bottom point because i mean they've looked so bad and yeah i mean i guess the next step would be Arietta not being able to make his next start on Friday and then, you know, him going under <laughs> undergoing like season ending surgery. Um, that would that would probably be the low point given the rotation situation. But yeah, I mean, they're in a real bad spot and I mean, I'm not sure even really what trades they could make unless, you know, it's a controllable pitcher beyond this year that will make um a huge difference. So I don't know. I, I know Phillies fans are fed up. They want contact to do something whether it's making a trade or firing people. But um, I will say one last thing is that the wild card in this situation is managing partner, John Middleton. I mean, he was the hero of the off season by Landy and Bryce Harper, and he can't be pleased with, you know, what's been transpiring on the field. So if he, if he gets to the point of being set up with the on-field product um, and demanding change, then, then you might see some action. All right. Well, send your angry emails to John S. Middleton at cigarbillionaires.com. Um, uh, Eagles training camp starts uh, next week. So uh, if, you know, failing anything else, uh, you know, we've got that to look forward to. Thanks for coming on to, to talk this through with me. It's been uh, frustrating to watch. I imagine uh, just as uh, uh, puzzling from your perspective. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. All right, we're going to wrap things up, as always, with uh, Ben Lindbergh. Ben. Hey, how's it going? I don't know why I hesitated before your name. It's always you in this spot. Pretty much. Yeah, it's very rom-com of me just now. It's always <laughs> you. It's always been you. Um, <laughs> so one thing that, uh, that we love, or at least I love, is pictures of people with large hands holding small objects. And yes. baseball uh, received... Uh, God, a, a classic contribution to the genre yesterday when NBA MVP Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, visited Yankee Stadium. He took batting practice with the Yankees and he was photographed holding a baseball, which like I've got pretty big hands. It looked like me holding a grape. <laughs> yeah, I do not have particularly big hands. I'd say my my hands are probably on the small side, even for my size. And yet, I mean, if you if you put a baseball in my hands, it, it takes up most of the hand. It takes up most of that room. Whereas with Giannis, it's like 
it's hard to tell from the the shot I saw, but it seems like the ball itself is maybe takes up only as much as his fingers before you even get to the palm. I'm not even sure if I'm not even sure. I'm not even sure it got that far. I thought I was thinking like the first two and a half digits. Yeah. Like the, the, the knuckles maybe (laughs) to the tip. That's basically a baseball in his hands. It does not look normal. (laughs) It's not normal. It's weird because like, you or I, we pick up a baseball and it feels like, yes, this is the right size of a thing right. that I'm going to grip and throw, right? Like that's, a baseball is built for people with normal size hands. I remember a Henry Owens pitch grip uh, picture and Henry Owens has freakish large hands uh, and like that didn't even approach uh, Giannis's hands. And obviously like you know, he's just, uh, this is what makes it, one of the things that makes him so great as a basketball player. I'm sitting here in my office, stretching my arms out as if to, as if the, the listeners can see that. Um, but his, you know, his wingspan, the length of his limbs, you know, his coordination, given that wingspan, the size of his hands, the ability to, to manipulate a basketball the way you or I might manipulate a baseball. And then just, it's, it's hysterically funny to, yeah. to watch him. You know, it's, it's great. Yeah, I mean, obviously you don't see baseball players this size. I guess I guess uh, there's what Loke Van Meel is is Giannis sized technically. Well, it's Giannis he's, height. He's, I don't he's know. Even, if, he's bigger yeah. than Giannis height wise, but yeah, you don't really see this sort of hand size because baseball doesn't really select for hand size. I don't think. I mean, maybe it's beneficial to a certain extent. Like sometimes maybe it should. Maybe like you'll see Pedro, for instance, who is not a particularly big guy, of course, but he does have these long fingers. And I've seen, I think, him sort of wrap his fingers around the ball. And it looks like, you know, it it looks a little abnormal. And you wonder whether maybe this is why he was able to impart such spin to the ball and get such great movement. But you just don't see anything like this. And I don't know whether it would be beneficial or not. I mean, his hands might be so big that it would be an, an impediment to gripping the ball well. Like, how do you even get your fingers on the seams if your fingers are like bigger than the seams? I, I don't know that that would work that well. Or maybe it works so well maybe, that he could yeah. just get incredible spin and just whip it to the plate. I don't know. But when you think about <laughs> what grips would be open to him. Right. It might not be open to somebody with, you know, with uh, who can buy That's gloves true. off the rack. He might just be able to invent an entirely new pitch type that no <laughs> baseball pitcher has ever conceived of because it's impossible to grip it that way. Well, uh, so the flip side of that is people with big hands tend to have long limbs. And so when you get somebody like Pedro Martinez, who has, you know, giant tennis racket hands, uh, but is six feet tall and has normally proportioned body parts otherwise, then he can keep the kinetic chain together well enough to command a baseball. Mm -hmm. Uh, The video that came out of Giannis trying to hit (laughs) off a tee illustrates the perils of trying to coordinate limbs that long into fine motor skills such as are required in baseball. Yes, it looked very much like a toddler taking his first swings off a tee. That was the level of coordination, I would say, was involved here. Obviously, he is a, a very coordinated person when he's doing the thing that he is trained to do. I'm guessing from the looks of it, he has never swung a bat before. So that, that seems like a safe yeah, assumption. And so I don't know, like maybe what he did, obviously it looked incredibly awkward because we know what he can do on the court. And here he was hitting the tee. He did make contact with the ball a couple of times, but the mechanics were ugly. I don't know whether this was like an above average swing for a person who has never taken a swing before and tried to hit a ball off a tee. I mean, that's not something anyone can do just instinctually the first time they try it. So it's 
very possible that if you took a, just a, an average person who, his age with his level of experience that this was actually better than they would do and that this looked so bad just because we expect more of him. But this looked very bad. <laughs> it looked well, really you, bad. You think about uh, – you know, you, Kylie McDaniel was tweeting about this. Like we see athletes from other sports – uh, you know, coming and taking batting practice or something. I remember Corey Dillon, the Bengals and Patriots running back, hitting a ball out of, of uh, uh, I think it was old Riverfront Stadium. Um, you know, the we see uh, Calvin Johnson did this. Steven Stamkos and Austin Matthews, uh, the NHL stars, uh, have put on a show like in in celebrity softball games or whatever, taking batting practice. And the difference is like athletes who grew up in the U.S. and Canada. Like even if they didn't play baseball through high school, they are familiar with baseball. They've watched yeah. it. They probably like. I mean, not to say that Giannis has never seen baseball before. I'm sure he has, but he didn't play it growing up, and mm-hmm. the way that that North American athletes from other sports do. Yeah. So this it's is, just, I imagine, this like- is like stepping in the right direction right. like the it's, whole the swing play, like the the basics, the fundamentals are just way off here. Yeah, it, that, it, yeah. It, it would be like I don't know. Um, uh, like having, you know, like Cody Bellinger put on ice skates, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, I don't think there's anything. I think there is something to like baseball demands fine motor control that other sports don't. Uh, but it, it, it is a very specific set of movements. And Giannis does have sort of a large unwieldy body in, in, uh, situations that he's not used to. But also, like you said, this might be the first time he's ever picked up a bat. Yeah. And so that's probably, it will probably look less awkward if he were six foot two. Uh, but, uh, I imagine all of this is, is the unfamiliarity, you know, we see basketball players, um, airmail first pitches all the time because we just assume that athletic athleticism translates. Mm-hmm. And this brings up something like, this is a big Bill Simmons gripe that it's impossible to like, it's very difficult to have, um, people look like convincing pitchers in movies, yes. you know, in terms of actors, you, you remember the episode we did years and years ago about undrafted that indie baseball film. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyler Hecklin, who played the pitcher on that, on that team, like was a high level college baseball player. He played at Arizona state and UC Irvine and he didn't look realistic at all on the mound. Yeah. It just, and it's just so, this just illustrates like how specific a, a skill set throwing a, a baseball or swinging a bat is. Yeah. I wish we had seen Giannis throw off a mound because that would have been a spectacle. His, his release point, at least he'd, he'd get rid of the pitch pretty close to the plate. So that would help him out. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure that as awkward as this looked, if he decided today that he wanted to be the next Michael Jordan minor league baseball player oh, and please. devote himself to baseball, like he'd probably be better than we are in like a week or something <laughs> just because he is a high level athlete and he would make us look incredibly uncoordinated in anything that we do if we had the same baseline experience heading into it. So I'm sure he'd pick it up very quickly. But uh, this was- I, 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 what I thought you were going to say is if he decided he wanted to become the next Michael Jordan, like how quickly would you be sending an email to to our editors saying, can I just take time off to cover this? Oh, yeah. Just follow him <laughs> around. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, okay, let's go to uh, another big man who throws baseball, Madison Bumgarner, who's mm-hmm. been, we've talked about tons. That was actually a pretty good segue. I was I'm wondering gonna... whether you'd go from the literal giant to the figurative giant. Oh, man. I... <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> a lot of that options That was way there. better. Wait, waiting uh, for you. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so 
so Madison Bumgarner, uh, I think since before the season even started, was like, this guy is definitely getting traded at the deadline. He's going to be really sought after by contenders. And uh, lo and behold, the Giants are three games out of the wild card. Yeah. And not only are they three games out, but they're playing really well over like the past six weeks or so. Grant Brisby, our pal at The Athletic, he has been doing a Madison Bumgarner trade meter just every week or every few days, just assessing the likelihood of Bumgarner getting traded. And in his most recent installment this week, he busted Bumgarner back down to a six on the one to 10 scale, where one is he signs an extension with the Giants and stays and 10 is he gets traded. So Grant just has him at a six right now, which is he's likely to get traded, but not the lock that we've been thinking for a while. And it's really hard to know what to make of the Giants, because I think it was just last week that I evocatively described them as a decomposing carcass sinking to the bottom of the sea and causing a feeding frenzy among all the contenders who were going to be snapping up pieces of the roster, but that is not at all what they are playing like these days. And again, cribbing from Grant here, the Giants have outscored their opponents 204 to 160 since June 1st. They have gone 23 and 15 since then. I mean, they've played like one of the best teams in baseball over six weeks or so. Granted, they played like one of the worst teams in baseball Mm -hmm. for the two months before that. And we can't just throw that out, not only because it, it contributes to their still sub 500 record, but because it tells us something about their true talent. And yet they have changed some of their roster and some of their personnel since then. They've gotten rid of some hitters. They've brought in some hitters. So it's not the same team exactly that was losing all those games. But I don't know that we can count on like Alex Dickerson and Austin Slater and some of the guys who are propping up this new San Francisco murderer's row to keep hitting like this. Yeah, and it's I mean, some part of the reason this is so hilarious is like they are trying to rediscover their uh, their success from 2014. And so they've just built a roster that would compete in 2014. Because yeah. <laughs> in addition to the players who were already there, uh, you know, Evan Longoria was there before the season. Obviously, he's on the, the IL right now. The remnants of that team, Pablo Sandoval being back, they brought in Kevin Pilar over the, over the offseason. They brought in Steven Vogt. You know, these are guys who like would have been on a, a pennant winning team in, in 2014, 2015. And some of them have really turned back the clock. It's been fun. Yeah. yeah. I think the giants just hit five home runs in a game for the first time since 2014. They're like the one team that's been immune to whatever's going on with the ball in the last few years. They just still haven't hit homers, but suddenly they are slugging wherever they go and they've been playing pretty good teams in, in the past 10 days or so. They're not like feasting on the Marlins or something. So it's very confusing, and I don't know what to make of it because I felt like heading into this month, they were the team that was most likely to sell, best positioned to sell, and the team that really had the most to offer because there just aren't that many teams that are clearly out of it right now. And of those, as we talked about last time, there aren't that many that have appealing players left. And so you looked at the Giants as the one team that really could capitalize on the situation, and now even they are so close, at least in the standings to a playoff spot, that there must be some San Francisco fans who are thinking, let's see where this thing goes. But 
On the other hand, you have the the new head of baseball operations, Farhan Zaidi, who has probably been waiting for this moment. This is the time when he can kind of put his stamp on this roster, kickstart the rebuild, get rid of some of these pending free agents and, you know, get some youth and try to increase the speed with which the Giants can pull themselves out of the hole that they're in or that they looked like they were in until recently. And so he must be kind of conflicted. I don't know whether you're happy because you want your team to play well and you want your players to play well or whether he's kind of conflicted because he's thinking this is going to be making it more difficult for me to cut bait in terms of public perception. And yet, you know, the true talent level of this team, I think, despite how well it's been playing. Yes, yeah, it's not a good weeks, team. Like yeah, you look at just, this and <laughs> like the the Bumgarner's good. Jeff Samarge has been pitching really well. Sean Anderson's been better than I expected. Um, but the bullpen's really good. And that's the yes. only, that's one, that's the only part of the team that's been really good. And two, that's incredibly valuable. Cause like they've got guys like Will Smith might be, I don't know, I, MLB trade rumors I rated him like their number one or two trade, uh, target just yeah. in terms of, of, uh, value and, and likelihood of being moved. You know, Sam Dyson has been great. Mark Melanson is a, a free agent after next season, I believe. Um, so maybe he doesn't get moved just because of his just because his contract yeah. is so big. Tony Watson and the Tony too. Watson's another guy like every one of those guys could is valuable to every team that has uh, that has playoff aspirations. And so when you tack on Bumgarner as the premier rental uh, rental starter, like they could trade Bumgarner and get like significant pieces back. They could uh, parcel those relievers out and get significant pieces back from several sources, or they could do what the White Sox did two years ago or the Padres did last year and say, Hey, we have a bullpen. Someone come buy it wholesale right. and get one significant piece back. The A's did this a couple years ago and that's how they got Jesus Lazardo in that uh, Madsen Doolittle trade. Um, yeah, even and, though even though he wasn't that prospect at the time, but you get you know you get what I'm saying. Yeah, and you can't really build around a bullpen, particularly a bullpen with very little team control left. And so you don't want to be fooled by this and think, oh, suddenly we're really good. I mean, if you look at the Fangrass playoff odds, they have like a two percent chance of winning a wild card this year, which maybe seems low based on how well they've been playing lately, but wouldn't have seemed low a, a couple months ago. So I would guess that the Giants' internal project are similarly pessimistic and this is their shot. So, I mean, you could construct a scenario where maybe you hold on to Bumgarner and there's a qualifying offer and you get a draft pick back and maybe that's not so much worse than what you get from trading him at the deadline with only half a season left. And so maybe you just uh, give it a chance and see where things go. But I don't know. I, I think that they're so close at this point that these next couple of weeks are really pivotal in terms of not not that the next couple of weeks will tell us that much about whether the Giants are actually good or not. But I think it's a lot easier to pull the trigger on these trades if they, I don't know, go six and seven or something over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And uh, they do have time to do that. The other right. thing is. If they're one, two, three, four, five, they've got to jump five teams or six teams to yes. to get in. Yeah. But the reason they've made so much ground up in the past couple of weeks is the rest of that field has just been like it's been standing still. This is how yeah. the Nationals went from out of it to comfortable in like four weeks. Right. So this is just I the the trade deadline for reasons that you illustrated last week is unpredictable enough this year. Mm -hmm. And then 
we're just having such a hard time at this point, even just based on a couple games back after the All-Star break. The I sort of expected the cream to rise to the top a little bit, and the exact opposite has happened. It's just gotten even more confused, particularly in the National League. Yeah, and they're still a last place team, of course, but they are closer That's to a wild. wild card spot. That's yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it really it's such a just a mix, a mus a mess, a muddle in the the NO wild card. Just everyone is in it essentially, except for the Marlins at this point. So yeah, it's very unlikely that they will leapfrog those teams that are ahead of them, and yet the teams that are ahead of them are not very imposing for the most part. So you can kind of dream. Anyway, it's fascinating. I think they headed into this month really as one of the most fascinating teams. And I think the the picture has only become less clear since then. So I don't know what happens, but if the Giants decide that they aren't that interested in selling and then that you know, throws it, the whole that whole, it, th- it throws totally, the whole trade yeah. deadline into Cause, chaos. Because then what is there? I mean, that you know, Zach Wheeler's on the yeah. IL now, so maybe the Mets aren't gonna sell or, or don't what have that. What does that, that do much to, to the market and, for Ken Giles or Shane Green or right. you know, does without Bumgarner and particularly yeah. if the Diamondbacks stay in and the Indians stay in, like I wrote today that like trading for, you know, going and shelling out for Marcus Sherman or Matt Boyd would be a sucker's bet, but maybe those might be the only two decent starting pitchers left on the market. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they might be that valuable. It's yeah. <laughs> it's just everything hanging on <laughs> how the Giants do oh, in the next boy. couple of weeks. Did not think that the Giants in 2019 would be dictating the story of the season, but here we are. Now, I literally did not believe that they were three games back when I checked it. <laughs> I I had to like stop and, and make sure I read it right. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Well, I hope that by the time we talk next week that uh, the situation has become a little bit more clear because, you know, even though it's the truth, I don't like saying I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right. All right. Well, one thing I do know is we'll talk again next week. And uh, so uh, in- enjoy uh, the chaos until then. All right. Talk to you then. That will just about do it for this week's episode of the Ringer MLB Show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben for joining me today. Thanks to my special guest, Megan Montemuro of The Athletic. You can find her on Twitter at M underscore M-O-N-T-E-M-U-R-R-O. Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Andrew Kashner, Matt Klentak, and Giannis Antetokounmpo for giving us stuff to talk about today. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. 